Hello, and welcome to episode 321 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Perrin, historian and deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Camp Shelby. And with me is my abbreviated uh, resume co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Toady. How are you hey, this fine morning, Bill? Doing great, Seth. And as we record this, we just passed a new milestone. Of course, will it be a month past the milestone when it airs? We passed 4 million YouTube views and I think another 700,000 audio listens, although that's less precise than YouTube. So again, want to thank all of our viewers and listeners. This would not, we, we, we wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for all of you guys, because it wouldn't be worth the effort, but it's fantastic. And so glad we can get the word about these um, great World War II, hero, II heroes out to our audience. Absolutely. And if you're watching now, you probably recognize a familiar face whom you haven't seen in quite some time. 11 months to be exact. I just looked it up on my phone and that is the one and only Dave Holland. Dave, how are you this fine January morning or afternoon, I guess? Morning for you. Nice and warm in Australia. And um, thanks again. Uh, let me be here uh, with you guys. I'm a canal guy, as we know, Guadalcanal guy, but I know the uh, First Marine Division well and his progression to Peleliu. Uh, I'm looking really forward to this talk. And I'm glad you told me that um, I'm on camera then because I thought you were talking. I was off camera. I was going to start scratching my nose and picking my hair. And I was, oh, I'm on. So I better be squared away. So those of you who don't remember our Guadalcanal accents won't remember Dave's confused Al Australian accent, right? Um, Alabama Australian. And Dave is in Australia. And uh, we're really grateful for him waking up really early to be with us this morning. His time. Middle yeah, of summer seats. there, right, Dave? Oh, yeah, summer. It's nice and warm. Oh, I live in Canberra, yeah. which is up kind of up in the mountains, so it's cooler. But nowhere like the U.S. right now, I'm seeing these temperatures. It's, I think like negative I think my mother told me in Alabama that there was negative five wind chill right yeah. Fahrenheit. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It, 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 it has at been, 70 degrees. It has been brutally cold uh, the last, I'd say, two weeks. It's actually re relatively warm to warm. It's relatively warm today in that it's uh, it's about 60 something here. Uh, but there's another front coming through on Friday, so it'll it'll chill back down here in the in the deep south. So 72 not... degrees here in Florida there, Seth. I know you I'm not gonna get any sympathy from you, but it is wonderful. <laughs> no, no, you won't, Bill. You will not at all. Last week when we recorded, I think you said it was 73 and it was 19. Exactly. 19 <laughs> here. Which is all right. Damn cool. But anyway, let's get started. Uh, before we get started, we want to ask you to like and subscribe to our channel as it helps others find our show. We want to get the history to the masses. So if you haven't done so, please do so. And if you have done so, thank you very much. So D-Day at Peleliu was a bloodbath, to put it simply. The invasion, which was supposed to be, quote, tough, but a quickie, was proving to be anything but... First Marine Division landed on Peleliu amidst a hailstorm of Japanese fire. Mortar and artillery fire churned the water into a froth as the LVTs filled with Marines approached the shore. Japanese machine gun bullets dropped like rain in the lagoon as the Marines disembarked from their landing craft. The enemy fire was intense, far more intense than had been expected by any pre-invasion planning party. Casualties amongst the Marines, especially Chesty Puller's 1st Marine Regiment, had been heartbreakingly high. More than 1,100 Marines and Navy corpsmen were casualties, 
on Peleliu's first day, with over 500 of those casualties coming from the 1st Marines alone. As dawn broke on day two at Peleliu, the going didn't get any easier. One of Puller's companies, K-3-1, led by the indomitable George Hunt, was still isolated at the point. Down to 18 men, the company had fought off an all-night Japanese assault that left the surviving Marines barely able to function. The 5th Marine sat poised to strike across Peleliu's airfield and what would be called by some survivors as, quote, our Omaha Beach, unquote. And as if that weren't enough, the big, biggest obstacle of them all, the Umerbrogel, loomed in front of them like some mythical fortress, honeycombed with caves, ravines, and death for far too many Marines from the old breed. Now, guys, uh, you know, Dave, you weren't with us for our first episode on Peleliu, but uh, you know how the story goes. You know, D-Day was was a a mess, to, to put it bluntly. We did, the Marines did make some progress inland and have, were set poised on the edge of the airfield. And as as we all know, the airfield was the major prize. And of course, you had to wipe out everybody on Peleliu, but the airfield was the major prize. And the 5th Marines... Their task for this very day, which is D plus one, is to take that airfield. But that airfield, if you look at a map, Bill, I don't know if you have uh, the maps ready to roll, but if you look at the map of Peleliu, that section of Peleliu where the airfield lies is about the only flat ground. Can you can you pull that up for us, Bill, and let us see it? Yeah, it's right there. So here's the, hopefully you can see it. Here's the airfield, and you're right. This area here is kind of plain. But then the Umabrogal mountain range here is going to wreak terror on the mostly the 1st Marine Regiment, the old breed that Dave is an expert on. Yeah, you know, one of the things that, that is, is you know, very steeped in Peleliu lore is the heat and the lack of water. Dave, we all have experience in this in some way, shape, or form, but but lay it on us. What was what was the situation, the supply situation, specifically water and in terms of weather looking like with the fifth well, with all the Marines, but specifically the fifth Marines on the edge of that airfield? The weather, I mean, we're talking I think I read somewhere some of the hottest ever experienced by US soldiers in other part from the desert in World War II. So we're looking at a hundred and 10, 115 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, basically, these guys were caught out, no cover in the open, combat conditions. So that in itself, you're, you're pumping out a lot of sweat and, and and doing a lot of work. So they landed with two canteens of water. That was a standard uh, assault rig out, two canteens of water. Um, but when the dawn broke, you can imagine after the first day of hard fighting, you have no water. And um, these guys are pretty good well, water discipline, especially that one third had been on Guadalcanal and the, and the two thirds had been in Cape Gloucester. So the thing you read about with the 1st Marine Division with their NCOs, especially on Guadalcanal and, and when it went into Gloucester, was the water discipline. They keep talking about these new guys. They don't know water discipline. They'll drink all the water in the first you know, hour to conserve your water, conserve your water. So even in considering that by the um, – Second day, I'd say most of these guys didn't have much water. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, it, it sounds bad, but they were taking water from the dead. There was, there was obviously, you need water. You see a couple of dead guys there, you're going to grab the water. And I had read one account where they're um, searching Japanese bodies, not for souvenirs as Marines normally do in those days. And um, they were looking for water. So it just shows yeah. how desperate they were. So 
they were already dehydrated and suffering from um, heat casualties. And then, I don't know, Bill, if you in your service you've seen heat casualties, but you can go down very quickly. I mean, put it some of the listeners mm-hmm. and uh, viewers out there. Imagine in the South going to football practice in a, in the summer without water. It, 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 it sucks it out of you. So I think it goes back to the point shown in the Pacific series and, and you speak to all the, most of the veterans of those days. And it wasn't just on Peleliu, but they stored the uh, water in these 55 gallon or what, 40 liter for my Australian viewers. <laughs> yeah, I have yeah. to do a conversion <laughs> um, um, gallon or, or fuel cans. And I think most of the people not even familiar with, with Peleliu even watch the, the series. Um, no, these fill, uh, fuel cans have to be properly sanitized. So at, back at Pavuvu in the in a rear rest area, they had working parties. And I've been on several working parties myself, and basically that's where um, NCL walks around, finds enlisted Marines, and says, you need to work. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole science about trying to get away from working parties. And the Marines, they call it skating, skating, to get away, to hide. I mean, I know guys used to hide under their racks. So the, the, the sergeants couldn't find them. You can just see sometimes on these working parties, they didn't want to be there. They're not that enthused and they didn't do a, uh, that good of a job. And even if they did, you're still going to get um, some of the um, petroleum products leaking out of those cans. Hence, when they opened these fuel cans up, it was a good idea because they, they built them so they could roll them off the ships very quickly. They opened them up, they couldn't drink it because as soon as they opened a lot of these up, you just had a layer of, um, you know, the skim of petroleum product on top, whether it's gasoline or, or um, almost said petrol, sorry, <laughs> petrol, gasoline, or diesel. Um, some of the Marines tried to drink it, but they became mainly sick and vomited. Um, there was one veteran, um, PFC Bill Layden of K-35. He found a hole um, filled with khaki-colored water, filled it with dead, filled with dead insects. Instead of drinking this water, um, water, he said, I'll take the next best thing. Um, and he went in to, to drink out of these mud holes, basically. And the water star Marines, they filled their helmets with um, this basically muddy water and gulped it down, adding to the misery. Um, another veteran, Eugene Sledge, watched some Marines puke as he drank the water and declined to consume the helmet full, and he grabbed himself. Sterling Mace, also from K-35, later said, quote, when I tasted the water from the oil barrels, I was glad I still had some from that mud hole. Uh, if you had to make a choice, coral grit goes down better than gasoline any day, unquote. <laughs> very, very, very true. Sterling Mace, to my knowledge, I knew Sterl very well. Uh, Sterling Mace is still alive. He's one of the few K-35 veterans from Peleliu and Okinawa that's still kicking. He lives or lived when I knew him in St. Pete Beach, Florida, Uh rather irrepressible young man at that time from Queens, New York. Uh, he was a hell of a hell of a guy. Bill, um, even you know, the water is an, a significant issue. The heat is a significant issue for the Marines on Peleliu, but <laughs> there was more of an issue than than even water and the heat. And, and that is basically their objective. Fifth Marines objective for that day or really for that part of the campaign is that airfield. And this is, as we said, it's the only real flat piece of ground on Peleliu, and that's going to be a tough nut to crack for these guys. Yeah, it is. The water is bad. The Japanese are worse. And one of the things I want to say here, Seth, is that the miniseries that you had something to do with the Pacific really portrays both the water issues and this uh, assault on the airfield very, 
very well. The mission was fairly simple. Move across the airfield with all haste, occupy enemy positions on the opposite side, and then move to the high ground. It sounds simple, extremely difficult to execute in the face of the enemy. There was no cover to speak of across the airfield. The smashed Japanese buildings on the other side were where men would naturally gather once across, but the Marines would be under direct fire from the high ground the entire way across. At 0800, three battalions from 5th Marines would jump off and get across the airfield. Anyway, that was the plan. 5th Marines would be supplemented by 2nd Battalion 1st Marines, who would take the northern portion of the airfield. And again, I'm a, I, let's see if I can pull that map up here. I think I can. So here's the 5th Marines in the middle assaulting the airfield. 1st Marines are to the north. They're supposed to take the northern part of the airfield right up here. And remember, that's Chesty Puller's regiment. We'll talk about him more later. So that's the plan. The assault would then turn toward northeast, pivoting on the extreme left of 1st Marines. At least that was the plan. Nervous at the thought the Marines knew they would take a pounding. And as the, and as the day before on D-Day, the Japanese in their tank and infantry counterattack had come across that same airfield and had been had been pounding by the 5th Marines. Now, on the receiving end, the men were anxious to get moving because they thought the quicker they could get across this airfield, the less punishment they would receive, Seth. But that's not the way it worked out. No, not at all. And, and I mean, again, you know, you got to emphasize the flat ground on the airfield here, because as we're going to see as we get in deeper into this episode, <laughs> that's it, because we're going to get up into the Umarbrogel, we're going to get up into the mountains and the, well, I say mountains, the mountain. And, uh, you know, this is this is the one area where there where there can be potentially a quick advance here is that airfield. So, you know, talking about three five, we didn't really mention them too much in the first episode. We're going to hit a lot on them today and, and our next episode. So when we talk about them too, they were not unlike any of the other battalions in the first division. Uh, they were veterans of one or two, at the very least, one campaign, either Guadalcanal or Cape Gloucester or both. Uh, those veterans made up about 65 to 70 percent of the rifle companies. Uh, the remainder, as we said before, were fresh boots, guys like Gene Sledge, you know, guys who had or Bill Layden, even for that matter, who had not seen any combat to this point. Um, K Company, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines was a perfect example of that veteran-infused, boot-infused rifle company within the 1st Marine Division that we talked about so much last week, Bill. Um, they were led, led by a hardened combat veteran, Captain Andrew A. Haldane, known by his codename of Close Crop because of his hair, or Ack Ack as Andrew A. 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 King Company, as it was called, was finely tuned machine. Haldane was a Massachusetts native, and a graduate of Maine's Bowdoin College, Bowdoin College, I'm sorry. Among his classmates of 1941 was another Marine whom you're going to hear about in this episode, one Everett P. Pope, who was also a fellow company commander in C, 1st Battalion, 1st Marines. Haldane was hey, typical Seth, of that. Yes. That's Bowdoin College of Joshua Chamberlain fame, right? Indeed it is. Indeed it is. Yeah. So they had a lot to live up to here. No little round top, though. 
Yeah, it's it. This is kind of the first Marine, the fifth Marines little round top, if you want to say it. Yeah, it's 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 no uh, no walk in the park, shall we say? But you know, getting back to getting back to Andy Haldane, he was he was typical of most company CEOs that populated the old breed, as we were saying. He was a graduate of OCS in 1942. He saw action on Guadalcanal and became CEO of K35 at Cape Gloucester, where he received a Silver Star for the vicious combat at Waltz Ridge. And Bill, we talked about that when we did our episode on Gloucester, the the fight at Waltz. Ridge by 3-5 was nasty, nasty, nasty. Uh, At 27 years old, Haldane was a fatherly figure to his men, if you can believe that, 27 years old, and you're the old man in the company. Uh, He was known to never raise his voice to an enlisted man. He was an easygoing guy who led his men by example, as all good leaders do, often encouraging his Marines to write their mothers and keep themselves out of unnecessary risk. He was absolutely loved by every man who populated K-3-5. And, you know, Bill, you've said this before, and and Dave, I know you can you can chime in here too, that, you know, when you've got a good company commander or executive officer or whatever the case may be, it's not uncommon to say he was loved by his men, but that's very, very true though. And I mean, in, your, in both of your experiences, that is a very true statement. Yeah, from what I've read and, and um, some of the guys have actually uh, I spoke to it and knew him. Um, yeah, they would have they would have loved him, respected him. Um, and for some of these young 18, 19 year old guys, he's almost probably like a wasn't so much a father, but like a a very respected uncle, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he provided the leadership there these guys had needed and they looked forward up to him um, yeah. and a guidance. Yeah. So, yeah. and uh, Dave, there's there's another scene from the um, the Pacific that comes to mind here, and has something to do with this gunnery sergeant. But do you know who I'm talking about? So I can I can talk about him. Um, yeah. Go for it. So, um, Elmo, nickname Pop Haney or Saint Elmo. Actually, I've got his service record book all the way from 1917 um, when he joined the Marine Corps. Got a service record wow. and it goes through that is just amazing. I'd love to share the I'll send it to you after this, Seth. He wrote um, so this guy, before I really get into him, um, in 1941, uh, when the war kicked off, uh, sorry, this has been no, yes, this has been early 42. So after the war kicked off of um, December 41, uh, Haney was sent to South America um, with a number of other Marines, kind of like a Marine embassy guard duties, probably. How you equate it today, but he didn't want to be there. He wanted to fight. So Haney was a bit of a centric fellow. So he sent a letter directly to the president of the United States. And in this letter, I won't say exact words he did, but he basically said he's down there amongst a bunch of uh, whoremongering, drinking people that he's a fighter and they're doing nothing but guarding diplomats. And, and he goes on and on and on. This is directly to the FDR. Obviously didn't get to FDR. It got intercepted. Thank goodness. In the chain of command. <laughs> But he said, I just want to fight. And he did right after that. And I've actually read the the, uh, corresponding letter when it went up to China Command, the the, uh, notes that the officer took. He said, yep, I think people knew of Haney. But Haney, um, he went to uh, K-35 in early 41, and he was one of the regional members of uh, K-35, apparently. Um, But I read that, and I thought, this can't be true because I've looked at his service record book and I've read a few books. He was a member of K-35 because if you were to tell me 7th Marines, yes, they were formed in January 41. 
But the 5th Marines had been there for a long time. They were the, the original unit, uh, the 1st Marine Brigade uh, that morphed into the, the division. But anyway, he was one of the early members before they deployed to Guadalcanal. So um, he joined the Marine Corps in 1917, but he missed the war. Um, like a lot of the Marines did at that time, he was serving um, on ship duty and some of the guys were in the Dominican Republic and other areas. So he missed the war. He didn't actually fight in, over in France. Um, but he was a banana war Marine. So there was the, the banana wars. And I'll refer to it a bit later in the podcast too, in an episode. Um, it was the wars fought in the, in the twenties and thirties in, in Haiti and Nicaragua, but he did his time there. He did a typical Marine Corps, um, enter or before the war tour. Then he went, I think he actually did some China time. I have to double check. So he did some time in China, China Marine. So he got around anyway. He was, um, about 46. Yeah. 46, roughly around that time. Um, so he served on Guadalcanal, served on Gloucester, actually earned a silver star on Gloucester. And I've got a good photo of him get presented the silver star. Um, it was a bit eccentric. I think any of the viewers that watched, um, the Pacific series, show some of his um, eccentric behavior. And apparently he was known to uh, clean himself in his showers with a stiff brush. And if you go into the books or go into the series, the, how he cleaned himself and which certain body parts, how he cleaned it with a supposed a steel brush and his, his um, I know we're family friendly, but I can, I'll use a technical term. Well, I won't use a marine term. I'll say testicles. <laughs> he's scrubbed his <laughs> testicles with a wire brush. You know, sometimes how these things, legends get built up. He was probably just scrubbing his back with it. Would have t- probably brushing his teeth and it just morphed into that. Marines just telling stories. <laughs> um, but you know, once again, in the Pacific, and that was based on a, uh, you probably know Seth, he was on a running or a shooting range and a boot lieutenant um, yep. had a um, safety breach. Yeah, I don't know if he hit him in the side of the head, but yeah, he, he got up him pretty quick or mm-hmm. got onto him. Um, so he's actually in a Collier's Magazine article, and I'll quote what the article says in 1942, yeah. how they describe him. So this kind of sums him up. Um, he was, quote, he is past 46. I think he's, he wasn't in his 50s yet. I think he's about 48. I have to double check. I'm sorry. So he's, quote, past 46, a leathery little man, a stickler for discipline, as rigid as a ramrod, a man who knows the book backwards, a sun-dried little man, as hard as hobnails, with more battles under his belt than most Marines have years of service, unquote. That was a very good description. Yeah, I was going to say that's probably pretty accurate, too. You know, and that he long since deceased when, when you know, the interviews of these guys were being conducted. But he even then was still, you know, I'm talking like in 06 and before, you know, he was even then revered by these guys for his leadership you know he was you know the first marine division is called the old breed and pop haney was the old breed he he was that that old marine that was just you know your typical prototypical you know ramrod straight hard as nails hard as woodpecker lips marine you know it would have been tough Mm -hmm. especially go through i remember i remember that scene in the pacific with him stripping down and when it started raining and yes, scrubbing up, and swearing at God when when the rain stopped because he hadn't rinsed off yet. Yes, <laughs> he's a good Australian that's... actor too. Gary Sweet, I think, played played him. He's a very well known Australian actor. Played a lot of good parts. So supposedly mm. that is true. You know, I mean, as you say, legends do legends do get built, but supposedly that you know that was a regular occurrence with him, and he would also conduct bayonet drill by himself. 
Uh, he would, you know, I guess shadow box with bayonets. But regardless, he he was an eccentric character. But he's one of those guys that filled the ranks, not just of K Company, but of all the uh, Marine battalions and regiments within the First Marine Division. And and you know, there were veterans like him and Hal Dane and guys that you've heard of, like Hillbilly Jones and Richard Higgins. You know, they dotted the muster list. But guys that were boots, like Bill Layden, we mentioned him before, and of course Eugene Sledge. Help fill the ranks. Layden was from Long Island, New York. He was a feisty little stocky little guy. Uh, he was foul mouthed and he was and I cuss, but I mean, he, he, he could make me blush. Uh, he was always looking for a fight and he fit in perfectly with the veteran rifleman in K Company. Um, of course, the most famous member of K Company we got to talk about is Eugene Sledge from your native state, Dave, of Alabama. Uh, uh, Gene was from Mobile. He was another boot. Uh, he absolutely idolized the veterans in K Company 3rd Battalion 5th, and he was very lucky enough to be stuck in my old buddy's uh, squad, RV Bergen's motor squad, which was filled with veterans like Bergen, Muriel Shelton, among others. Uh, Sledge, of course, kept an illegal diary in the pages of his New Testament that, of course, he used to write probably the greatest um, first-person account of fighting ever written by an enlisted man, which, of course, is with the old breed from Peleludo, Okinawa. Now, as we're getting ready to kick off this fight uh, here across this airfield, you know these guys, Bill, they're they're lying in their shell craters, and and they're they're you know preparing for this assault. Tell us how this assault goes down. They received Japanese artillery before they ever even move out, right? Yeah, they did. It started, you know, in front of their positions, and you know they they're arranging, and so the artillery fire began to creep towards them. American artillery responded including naval gunfire being the loudest, but the Navy and the 11th Marines provided a walking barrage that started mid-airfield and walked towards the Japanese positions on the other end, culminating in a massive barrage on those precisions. Then exactly at eight o'clock, just as planned, Marine officers stood up and yelled, let's go. The men, all 4,500 of them, 4,500 at this point in time, got up and began moving across the airfield at a slow walk and then a trot. And then after about 200 yards, the Japanese opened fire from the high ground, causing the Marines to break into full sprint across the airfield. The fire grew in intensity as the Marines moved further with rifle fire shots zipping past the Marines. One 19-year-old recalled, you could hear a shot, shot, plop. And of course, the plop was a bullet going through a body. With no place to hide the Marines, the only place there was to go was forward. The Japanese artillery tore into the Marines and calls for corpsmen were ignored. Nobody had any, nobody had any idea except to survive. They were running. They just wanted to live at this point, just trying to keep moving. Gene Sledge remembered the charge across the airfield as the most terrifying ordeal on Peleliu. Sledge put his faith in the man upstairs and kept repeating to himself, Psalm 13, 23, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Sledge made it across the survivors of K-35 who were at this point visibly shaken. And Seth, I got to tell you that Psalm 23 is a very dear spot in my heart for a bunch of reasons, not the least of which is my old buddy, L.D. Cox, survivor of the USS Indianapolis. I was visiting him while he was on his deathbed and L.D. Cox had me read 23, uh, Psalm 23 to him. I'm, I'm guessing 30 or 40 times um, while he was on his deathbed. So every time I hear Psalm 23, they, I can't help but get emotional over it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's 
you can understand why, you know, as, as you're going through, and this is not Sledge's first combat experience. His first combat experience was the day before, but even after all those years, he remembered this as being his most terrifying time in combat was running across that airfield. And if you look at pictures of the attack, which I'll show now, uh, you know, I mean, there is literally no place for these guys to hide. I mean, you see a couple of wrecked Japanese aircraft and maybe a vehicle or two, and that is it. Other than that, it is as flat as a pancake and as wide open as you could possibly imagine it to be. And there's a reason that the the survivors of which, you know, they were significantly less than those who started out called it our Omaha Beach because those guys were in a shooting gallery the whole way across. You know, but Dave, once they get across over there, once they get across the airfield, that's that's not it. The, the fight is not over by any means. You know, there's still got a lot of Japanese to knock out over there, right? Well, yeah, I mean, that was just getting across no man's land, um, so to speak. Actually, I was reading one account where Marine thought it said it looked like a movie, uh, a World War One movie. He said when they were running over the, if you looked left and right, and it looked like something out of World War One over the top. Um, so yeah, once I had to go across the um, the danger area, uh, then they had to actually uh, close with and destroy, is what a Marine Infantry Squad does. Uh, the enemy, which in this case is the Japanese. The Japanese had had, um, I think um, you haven't. Sh- uh, it's on your photo. Do you have that little skeletal remains of these hangars? Because they built yep. them pre-war. That was the conquerors. You know that thing you guys discussed it maybe in your last episode how they built this up uh, pre-war. There's a Japanese possession, so these reinforced concrete hangars. Um, and I think in the Pacific too, they showed a good uh, representation mm-hmm. of one of those buildings. But so the Japanese were in these things, and once again, you got to remember they withstood the naval bombardments. So I know you guys talked about that last week, so I won't get into that now what the potential lack of, but don't get me on that, that sidetrack. Um, <laughs> so these first guys across, uh, they didn't have their normal port uh, screw and blow torch demolition um, tactics. So our equipment with them. So like their C4 and the demolition charges and the bazookas, they didn't, the first guys didn't have them. So the first guys, what do you think they had? They had rifles and bayonets and machine guns. So they had to get these Japanese out of these um, fixed positions. So they had grenades and their um, small arms. Um, so basically, it was hand-to-hand, slow, methodical type fighting. Um, and then once again, I guess you could say, quote, the cavalry arrived with the Shermans, the tank support they had. Uh, I don't know why the tanks didn't go forward, and it was a, a combined infantry attack uh, with the with the tanks. But the tanks, I guess, there were a few tanks, and they probably did provide cover or provide support to some branch. And then once they started getting, um, I guess, uh, defensive fire from another section, they re- uh, diverted those tanks to say, look, we got some uh, nuts to crack over here, and they probably brought some tank support up then. So then it was hand-to-hand and, and basically blasting these Japanese out of emplacements. And once the Shermans come up with their 75s, um, they were hitting them point blank. And once they destroyed those Japanese positions, then the Marines could move forward um, past those initial uh, defensive positions around the airfield. Yeah, the the tanks definitely added uh, some oomph to the attack for sure, because just like you said, most of the guys once they got across there, 
you know, they, they did not have the, the the demo weapons that they needed at that point. I, and that's not to say that they weren't there, but by and large, they didn't have everything they needed. The tanks really provided that that power to get through those last bit of the defenses right there. And once they were done that portion, uh, they skirted along the northern edge of the airfield. Uh, Chesty Puller's 2nd Battalion 1st ran into stiff, and I do mean stiff, enemy resistance amid the rubble of aircraft hangars and storage buildings over on the other side. Uh, making use of the ruins as improvised fighting positions, the Japanese often fought stubbornly, no surprise here, and slowed down the Marine advance. Um, Chesty Puller's 2-1 uh, fights into the afternoon before it clears those ruins and takes up new positions on the island's main thoroughfare, which is the East Road. Um, casualties amongst the attackers, um, the Marines, of course, were very heavy. Uh, at 1018, Bucky Harris, who's CEO of 5th Marines, uh, receives a message from 1-5 requesting reinforcements. A Company 1st Battalion 5th had 90 effectives left. And B and C were not much better. Total casualties for the assault vary, but estimates put the Marine casualties in the charge across the airfield alone and the fighting on the other side at about 300 men, 300 men in the 5th Marines alone. So it was, you know, every bit as nasty and bloody as those guys had feared once they got across. But the key point here is, is that they do get across, they do clear those buildings, and as something you're going to see as we go through these Peleliu episodes, they do it fast, and and it's and the positions are cleared quickly, and the Japanese are eliminated quickly, which is something you're not going to see for the remainder of the campaign as we get up into the hills. And key point here also is that by capturing this airfield, it allowed uh, Marine uh, Corsairs to move into the region here pretty soon. I don't remember the exact date that they got VMF 114 down there. But it wasn't about a week later, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more than that, that the Corsairs do come in there and they start providing, you know, there's really famous footage of these Corsairs uh, taking off from the field with their landing gear still down, dropping napalm on the Umar Brogel, which is literally at the end of the damn airstrip right there. They called it the shortest bombing run of the war. Take off, drop, turn around, land and do it again. Um, but that air support really brings uh, another aspect of the fight to the Marine side. And I think it comes about a week later. Now, guys, while the 5th Marines took the airfield along with 2nd Battalion 1st, the 7th Marines had been making slow but steady progress up Peleliu's eastern shore. Um, Bill, if you can bring the map up, you can you can show us where these guys are looking at right about now. You know, seventh came ashore to the south here, but then they pivoted. They cleared the areas. We talked about that last week, all the way to the south. But then they pivoted up, and they were supposed to go up the East Road. So that that was the plan. And you know, if anybody had it, I'm going to use the word easy. And it wasn't easy. It was the Seventh Marines. Um, you know, they they were able to get to some progress. But that, yeah, that progress did come to a sudden halt when they ran into a 40-foot diameter concrete blockhouse possessing four-foot-thick walls. The structure was bristling with machine guns and 20-millimeter cannons, and it was the strongest defensive work on the entire island. So the immense structure was immune to both flamethrowers and 75-millimeter tank guns. And Marine infantry suffered badly during the repeated fruitless attacks. Engineers finally breached the blockhouse with a hefty charge of plastic explosives and vengeful rifle men gunned down stunned Japanese that stumbled out of the structure. Um, I Company 1st Battalion 7th Marines specifically 
claimed the blockhouse as their prize. And the 7th Marines by far had the easiest time, I said that, in the fight. But that's not to say it was a cakewalk. But their casualties had been significantly lighter. And the terrain in which they found themselves relatively flat and covered by scrub jungle foliage, something that the Marines were relatively familiar with, Seth. Yeah. And Dave, you know, going back to your Guadalcanal, uh, you know, experiences, and then, you know, we know Cape Gloucester was a rainforest, literally tropical rainforest. This is terrain that the Marines are somewhat familiar with. And, you know, we've, we've made the comments on numerous episodes that terrain, 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 you know, is really the master of everything. And this is one of the examples that, you know, even though you're facing a, you know, a seemingly, you know, impregnable fortress in this one blockhouse, the Marines are able to knock it out mainly because of the fact that they can move around terrain that's familiar to them and execute the tactics that they know well. So if you look at, I guess, or starting from Guadalcanal to Cape Gloucester, just like you said, Seth, these guys are very familiar with the, the thick jungle. And also the, um, I've read somewhere in Peleliu, one of the books on Peleliu, and they said the Marines wouldn't really, um, had experience with with caves and and fits, fixed positions, and I'll mention this now, which because we're talking about it, that's not true. And just on Guadalcanal itself, um, look at day one on Tulagi, they were fighting for caves. Then the whole Point Cruz area, which a lot of people don't even know on Guadalcanal, that was just coral caves. They, they held the Marines up there for six weeks in in fixed positions. So they had the first Marine Division knew about, um, I guess you'd call it bunker busting. So they had experience on that. And then once again on Gloucester, they had a number of, of, of bunkers. I don't, um, uh, they did run in some, some caves and some stuff on Gloucester too, as you, you guys talked about. One thing about, I'll mention, I was listening to you guys' uh, episode last week about terrain. Um, I'll just do a quick sidetrack. You got a, a minute or two here. Um, so when I was in the Marine Corps, I remember, more and more I read about this battle, I keep thinking about Iwo Jima. I said, this is like a mini Iwo Jima. Um, the more I read about it, and all this is you guys are going to cover Iwo extensively in, in the future. But in 1989, I was in the, the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines. So that's why I like reading about the 5th Marines. I was in 1-5, and we were in Okinawa on a deployment there. And I got to I got picked for my battalion to go on a battlefield study tour of Iwo Jima. So I was there for four days. And my role in the Marine Corps at the time was a scout sniper. So my whole goal was actually to, and, and training was to identify terrain, to read terrain, to report back on terrain and for reconnaissance type work. And I remember we went into one bunker. And when I was reading about uh, Peleliu, I kept ref thinking back to that. And I go, man, this is, this is, this is crazy. Um, and one bunker, I don't know if it's, the bunker's probably still there, but on the side of the wall was, and I recognize it because being a trained forward observer, you could just see things on the wall and it had like little numbers and, and Japanese writing, but it had like, for example, I'll just, I don't know what the numbers were, but alpha AB1001 or AB1002. And they had like a little part that was still there. You had like a little, like a range chart and terrain chart. And it had like a little uh, recess in the ground. It was right directly in front of them. And it had like 200 meters out, 100 meters. And basically what that was, and we had a uh, colonel that was taking us around. He said, that's the range. So that whole area was pre-registered. And that was the same way with, with Peleliu. That whole area was pre-registered. Mm. And I just, yep. As more and more I read about Peleliu, I thought, this is just like Iwo Jima. I mean, this is just like a, uh, 
I don't know. And I remember on, on Evil, I said, if I ever found an Evil veteran, I'd shake their hand. And I would say the same with Peleliu after studying Peleliu a bit here. This is just the, the, oh, what they had to go through. The defense is just unreal. It, it was ungodly the amount of preparation that the Japanese put into this defense of this island. And Nakagawa was an absolute master at defense. Colonel Nakagawa, he was he was a master at defense. And you know, as we'll see as we go through these episodes, uh, the example that he puts forth here for the Japanese is followed very closely as the rest of the Pacific War unfolds. Now, you know, there's some famous artwork, Bill, that came out of this uh, event uh, by a guy named Tom Lee. He was a Life magazine artist. Can you tell us a little bit about Tom Lee? He, he had some incredible images yeah. that he created out of this. And everybody knows the expression, thousand meters stare. And I, I don't remember where that originated, but but he had one piece of, uh, art that he created that was the 2000 yard stare and it in it you could see a grizzled marine with a dead look in his eyes you know and uh, you know probably a week's stubble on his face he also had a, did another um image of a marine actually in a boat going ashore from Peleliu and i remember that one is noteworthy because the marine has green camouflage paint on his face and I think the first time I saw this Tom Lee image was the first time I ever realized that the Marines put cam camo paint on their face. Even then, in, in, at Peleliu, of course, I'm sure, Dave, you knew about this. But, but you know, the most famous one is that whiskery, whiskery red-eyed, dirty Marine who'd spent the night fighting in foxholes with the stinking swamp water. And he's slimy and mean. That's the way... Um, Tom Lee described him anyway, and passing by the block blown out blockhouse, Lee took note of the dead Japanese around him, writing, there were dead Japs, Japanese on the ground where they had been hit. And in two pillboxes, I saw some of the bodies that were no more than red raw meat and blood mixed up with the gravelly dust, concrete, and splintered logs. And it was just a horrific, hellacious scene that he both painted and described really well in his articles, Seth. Yeah. And if you go back and you, and there's several books written about Tom Lee, and I even think there's one by Tom Lee. Uh, I highly suggest you pick him, pick him up and look at some of his artwork because Peleliu is not the only thing that he painted. Uh, he painted some stuff that would, he was aboard the USS Hornet during the Battle of Santa Cruz and, and other places like that. And But Peleliu is what he's most famous for. And highly suggest you take a look at some of his artwork if you haven't seen it. But he was attached to the 7th Marines, which is why we bring him up now. Um, the 7th continued their advance in the south here. Uh, and by 1025, lead elements were within sight of their objective at the southeastern promontory. They, by far, with the exception of the 5th Marines taking the airfield on D plus two or D plus one, uh, the 7th Marines had made the most progress by far on Peleliu. Um, two pillboxes defended the area, and by 1200, both of those pillboxes have been left in ruins thanks to naval gunfire and airstrikes, as we were talking about. These airstrikes, at this point, are coming from the aircraft carriers of the Big Blue Fleet. Uh, shortly after lunch, uh, the 7th had cut off the southern portion of Peleliu and would concentrate on killing what was left of the Japanese on that end. Uh, as stated before, casualties had been lightest in the 7th, but Peleliu's, Peleliu's merciless heat that David alluded to before, 105 degrees in the shade, 
left the men dehydrated and spent out of water. 3-7 urgently requested replenishment as men were, quote, out of water and having dry heaves, unquote. LVTs eventually did bring water to the men who slurped it up as fast as they could. Now, we left off last week's episode, uh, Bill, with the story of K Company 3rd Battalion 1st at the point. Uh, the point is that promontory that kind of sticks out in between uh, there. At, yeah, there you go, right, right there. Um, George Hunt's company <laughs> had been whittled down to, I mean, virtually nothing by D plus one, D plus two. They were down to 18 men who could move and walk and pull a trigger, an entire company, when they landed with 235 guys. Um, as dawn is breaking and the 5th Marines are making their attack across the airfield, K31 still holds the point, albeit just barely. Uh, the Japanese had hit Hunt's men all night long, but the guys held, the Marines held, uh, as I said, although down to 18 men. Um, they did get some reinforcements earlier in that morning on D plus one via LVTs. And most of these guys, you know, they were, they were, some of them were from K three, one second platoon that had gotten separated. Others were literally cooks, uh, field music, whatever, whoever could pick up a rifle and move were put up in this line quote, uh, George Hunt writes, Cat tractors rolled up to us all day along the reef. They brought my mortar section with clover leaf after clover leaf of shells. They brought up an artillery observation team and a radio, finally, to communicate with the gun batteries and the remaining 10 men from my second platoon, unquote. Um, with the supply and reinforcement, Hunt allowed, quote, that it would be our turn to throw the heavy stuff, mortars and artillery. We had seven machine guns on the line and 30 more men. Radios were working and there were two telephone lines to battalion. For the first time since we landed, we felt secure, unquote. Now, it, you can't make light of this situation. And, and, you know, George Hunt in this fight for the point there on Peleliu, Dave, as a former 1st Marine Division uh, grunt, this is a legendary story. These guys held out all night long. And when you talk about close combat, this was some close combat. I mean, literally, guys jumping on the backs of, of Marines, Japanese jumping on the backs of Marines as they're holding this point tenuously all night long. It's truly one of the legendary stories of not only Peleliu, but of the Pacific War. Can you enlighten us on some of the action that goes on down here? So um, I think I read this. What Carl comes high? Yep, very small book, but very good book. I mean, I'm, I was, as you can tell from behind me, I've read a, read a bit, and I, I've been a reader since I was a little kid. So I remember reading this in the Marines. In fact, it was on the Marines one of the recommended commandants recommended uh, books on his list. I don't know if they still have it. I'm pretty pretty sure they still have the commandants reading list, and uh, it was one of them on there. I think a lot of guys actually read it because it was so small. <laughs> you have to read a X number of books and Marines being Marines. I'll read that little one, but the little, you know, it comes in a lot of information comes in good packages. So it's actually a good book to read if you haven't read it um, for the listeners and viewers. So once they felt secure, um, Captain Hunt felt strong enough to send a patrol out in front of his lines. Um, yeah. And then patrol went out. Once again, the Japanese was there because they didn't have to go far and they got a, a pretty good firefight. Uh, and it cost the lives of three men. I don't know how many was wounded at three key uh, KIA. The patrol leader reported back to Hunt, um, quote, there's a mess of them in the caves. Uh, take a hell of a lot of men to rat them out, unquote. And Hunt reported to the battalion commander there was um, still, quote, plenty of 
the Japs in front of us seem to be gathering for something, maybe a night attack, unquote. So once again, they're gathering intel. They're getting ready. This is going to be a night attack. So correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Seth. They haven't. They wouldn't cut off completely here at this stage. I know they've been cut off earlier. Have they been correct. opened up, like you said? Yeah. So they had a little bit of, I think from the beach, they had some of the uh, small supply line so they could uh, evacuate some of the wounded to bring in supplies and a few other guys. Right. So, yep, so their reconnaissance and their information paid off. They prepped themselves up. The thing I was reading, you, you got seven machine guns. You got seven machine guns in a small perimeter. That's a lot of firepower, the machine guns. So they might have just got probably scavenged the machine guns off some uh, Amtrak or there's probably enough guns laying around. I don't think one of the, I think he lost his whole machine gun platoon. If I remember um, on day one, Hunt did, or yep. day two, most of the machine gun platoon. Yeah, in fact, on the beach, all the machine gun platoon was wiped out on the beach, he said. So there was probably plenty of guns laying around to grab. So around midnight, the Japanese hit um, K Company again, 3-1. So once again, they had a small perimeter, and uh, basically was a carved-out hole in a beach. One of these guys, Fred Fox, what rank was he, Seth? Do you remember? Uh, he was he was a PFC. Yeah, Fred Fox. He, yeah, was, so, he was a grunt. So, yeah. yeah, so PFC Fred Fox uh, prepped himself for the fight. Hearing the noise in the water behind him, he immediately whirled around. He said, quote, in turning, I hit a I hit a bayonet that had started into my chest and knocked it out of the way. It cut through my jacket and left a four by one inch inch half four, sorry, four inch by one inch half gash through the flesh of my left chest. I had a pistol in my hand. It was cocked and loaded, but I did not shoot the man. I hit him in the face with it as hard as I could. He immediately dropped the rifle, which I took and banned at him with. I pulled it out and started yelling, nips, nips, unquote. But you could see that natural reaction. You know, that's that's a scary, that's actually a good um good indication of how uh, close combat was, you know. Very, um, very scary to have that bayonet there. And it was just an instant reaction. Instead of shooting, he just um reacted body wounds, hit him in the face with a pistol. Yeah. It's just instant um, reaction, reflex. And and and, the, and Fox's Fred, Fred's position was at the edge of the line of K Company, and he literally was almost in the water. I mean, he was when he said he heard a noise in the water. He means he heard a noise in the water because it was like ten feet behind him. I mean, he was damn near in the surf when this is going on. The Japanese had tried to work themselves around. So, I mean, you know, they were coming in from behind K Company's positions right there because they knew they had whittled these guys down. And to your point, Dave, you'd asked if they, you know, they were cut off initially on day one. Yeah, obviously they were, but they did get some resupply. But to be clear, they were still the only guys up on that point. K Company 3rd Battalion 1st were the only cats on the uh, Marines on the top of that point up there. Um, they had received a few reinforcements here and there, and most importantly, ammunition. But they were the only living, breathing Marines on that point. So they hadn't received a whole hell of a lot of help. Um, once that attack hits Fred Fox, and he is the first guy that gets hit in that melee at night it just erupts on the point again uh marines all around the point start yelling the fight grows in intensity amid immediately hunt sitting in the middle of all of his men which is a good place for a company commander to be recall quote i bellowed until i thought my lungs would crack give them hell kill every one of them unquote the japanese were literally stampeding the marines up on the front end of this line but the marines held you know, un unbelievably so, even though they're outnumbered probably close to three to one, 
they hold out again through the night at this time, which is something they did not have on the first night. They actually have Marine Corps artillery support. Uh, the Marine Corps artillery starts crashing in among the Japanese attackers who are now lit by flares, wiping out many uh, as the flares begin to fall. And we've all seen flares at night. You know, they do that ghostly, you know, trickle as they drop down at night. Um Hunt says, quote, two figures dim and queerly distorted in the battle fog fought against each other on the crest of the cliff. Their arms were swinging wildly, their heads lowered and legs intertwined. The largest figure seemed to heave forward with his entire right side. The knees of the other bent back. He turned sideways and losing his balance, tumbled off the cliff, unquote. So the, the fighting all along the point, literally in almost every single position, was hand to hand. Um the Japanese, as we said, Bill, they attempted to go around the left flank through the water's edge just below the cliff. And Fred Fox, my old buddy who got hurt in this fight, he's in trouble here, isn't he? He is. He's caught between the enemy and his own men. And, you know, in a second or two, there were, I think, another two or three Japanese. He says, in a, in a second or two, there were another two or three Japanese starting after me. Then there was an explosion and I went down to the water hit along the left side with five chunks of steel in my left leg and left arm, unquote. Another Japanese soldier bayoneted him in the neck and across the back and left him for dead. He said, I lay quietly in the water. At certain times, I would look out of the corner of my eye to see if I could see anything. And I could see uh, wrapped legs, right leggings, and split-toed shoes, knowing that it was the Japanese, unquote. Barely conscious, Fred Fox lay bleeding as the battle raged all around him. The guns fired across the water over him against the cliff. And he said, this went on until sometime just before daylight. So he played dead until just before daylight. Then he yelled for help and his, and his calls for help were heard. A Marine left his position, worked his way over to the badly wounded man and carried him to safety. It's, you know, it's amazing that he didn't give up hope um, going through all of that with these serious wounds, waiting for somebody to rescue him. Yeah, he, he was a plucky little dude. He uh, he returned to Peleliu in the 90s. And if you refer back to our first episode, last week's episode, we did about, about Peleliu and talked about the point we mentioned, Fred. And um, he, he had... He was a flamethrower man, but he didn't have his flamethrower either. I can't remember if it was defective or if he lost it going ashore. He just didn't have it. All he had was an M1 and his 45, his 1911. And as that first attack was about to come in, he laid out his, he had his M1 and he laid his in-block clips out there for his M1. And he put his K-bar down and like on one of the coral rocks. Well, he went back to Peleliu in the early 90s. And I swear to God, I saw this knife with my own two eyes. He brought back his K-bar that he left on the friggin' point in 1944. He brought it back home to San Antonio in the 1990s. I swear to God, I saw it in my own eyes. Wow. Unbelievable. He was a hell of a guy. Yeah, hell of a wow. guy. That's, that's a scary story. You know, you can just picture yourself. It's, a, you know, it's presented quite well and, and described quite well. That's very scary. Yeah. Jeez, it is. Hey, boys, very yeah, near a, death. That's quite amazing, too. Jeez. Yeah. So by morning on D plus two, George Hunt's K Company still held the point, as we said. He had received replacements on D plus one and again in the morning on D plus two, but still his company was absolutely shattered. Uh, PFCs were squad leaders and what few NCOs were left were now platoon leaders. 
of the original 235 men of K31 that landed on D-Day, plus replacements received during their ordeal at the point, only 78 remained. And their fight was far from finished. Uh, relieved by another company, K31 got more replacements and was fed into the line yet again. At the time, at this time, they were looking straight at the hellish-looking landscape that would soon earn the name of Bloody Nose Ridge. Now, guys, we got to talk about this. And Dave, I know you want to mention uh, the two leaders that we're about to talk about, which of course are General William Rupertus and Chesty Puller. By the end of D plus one. The Marines had enlarged their foothold on Peleliu, no doubt. But most, and most of the southern portion of the island was in their hands, and the beachhead stretched some three thousand yards across the southwest corner of the island. The airfield had been captured, and the left flank had been reinforced with more men and equipment. However, the operation was well behind the timetable. The gains made were seen as significant success. So much so that General Geiger released the 81st Division to take Angour, which, Angour, which was probably a bit too early, and we'll get to that in a minute, too. Casualties, as we said, had been absolutely horrendous, especially in the 1st Marines. Fuller's regiment reported 500 casualties on D-Day and a further 600 on D-plus-1. This is what we want to get into. Now, doctrine stated that losses in excess of 15% were enough to pull a unit off the line. Puller's 1st Marines had thus far suffered 33% casualties in 48 hours, and the worst was yet to come. I have in my notes here, and I know, and we're not going to pile on, but we need to discuss this because this is a significant question about, you know, the whole ordeal at Peleliu. Puller deserves a great deal of the blame at this point, and it will get worse. Uh, he repeatedly threw his decimated units at the Japanese who were entrenched, as we know, and reportedly berated his subordinates in the field when things fell short. But he's not the only one to blame, is he? No, I mean, um, this could be an episode in itself. I'm, um, I'll, I'll, what I'll do, I'll, I'll talk about Puller and Rupertus, um in, in both episodes. So kind of spare it out because at the very end, we'll have, our, I guess, our final thoughts um, in next episode. So I'll maybe gives a bit of an indication some of the viewers have to tune in for next week, so to speak. But so I think Puller, you got to remember, was a lot of, I think, and I'm trying to look at a historically objective uh, view of Puller and Rupertus. As we know, Puller was most decorated Marine of all time. He was a legend. And we discussed him on Guadalcanal, and he's been discussed with Cape Gloucester. Um, and I think, unfairly, Puller has been – um, a lot of the blame of Peleliu and the destruction of the 1st Marine Regiment um, is thrown straight directly on his shoulder, like all the blame or majority of the blame, which isn't, isn't, isn't correct. I don't know if it's been a re uh, revisionist over the years. I mean, uh, Puller seems to be the fall guy. you got to remember, I don't know why people think Puller was acting out of character. In fact, Puller was not acting out of character. I mean, uh, Look at his, his service in the Banana Wars. Look at his service on Guadalcanal. Look at his service on Gloucester. He was not acting out of character. I mean, everyone was happy with the way he basically operated before because he got results. He achieved results, and everyone was happy with him. But the time here that he didn't achieve results and he basically destroyed his his, 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 or his regiment was destroyed, then the fingers started pointing. Um, um, now, the Marine Corps doctrine and the Navy command decisions at the time, you got to remember, pushed him into that style of warfare in Peleliu. A lot of this information um, comes from my friend John Hoffman, who was a, he's a 
wrote a biography on Puller and Edson, and he was a Marine historian, retired. Um, and the, basically, the doctrine is momentum. Once you hit the shore, keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing, keep hitting until you overrun the whole thing. Did he was he at fault at times? Yeah, he, he has to um, have fault and share some of the blame. I think one of his biggest failure, and I already brought it up, was his um, he failed to lodge a protest with Repertus and, and push back mm-hmm. when Repertus was saying, keep, keep attacking, keep attacking, keep attacking. Um, and we talk about Repertus, we're talking about uh, Puller, we're talking about another these other veterans. As I read about Peleliu, especially these canal guys that started on the canal. Might have earned a Navy Cross, Silver Star in the Canal, rated as the top you know, combat person in their either officer or listed in their company, but fell apart on Peleliu. Mm-hmm. They just broke apart. I think this was one too many. They pushed them too much. And I think Puller and some of the command were suffering from this. They were fatigued. They were tired, potentially post-traumatic stress, because you've got to remember, four months in that pressure cooker Guadalcanal, just, just to say, take the Japanese out. Four months in that pressure cooker and those conditions, then weeks in Cape Gloucester under that conditions. No wonder they guys were breaking up. I mean, I spent a week in the jungle one time and almost wrecked me. I can imagine spending four months under that condition. And then you gotta throw in people trying to kill you, then diseases. So I think all that played in effect. But Puller, once again, he and, and if he was pressured, one of his failings is is as Hoffman um says that he didn't apply, if he was pressured or he didn't create that pressure, he didn't, did, didn't do anything to stop it. Because once again, if he did push back, like Bucky Harris potentially would have pushed back, tried to, what do you think the division commander would have done? It probably relieved him if he, he wouldn't um, push him forward. And then if he would have been relieved him, and then Puller's whole reputation would have been gone. And plus two, once again, I think I mentioned, he's trying to live up to his reputation. You know, I'm Chesty Puller. I get the job done. Um, I'll keep pushing no matter what. No yeah, matter what. Un- un- unfortunately, though, that his is. I agree with you in some ways, and I disagree in others. Because while you know he doesn't, he certainly has a reputation. His reputation, or his his belief in trying to hold up his reputation, costs a lot of guys their lives. And and you know, I knew I. A lot of guys in the first Marines that were at Peleliu who cursed Chesty Puller's name to their dying day because he felt that they felt that that he had wronged them in such a way. But as I started to say, and and I wanted to get onto this, is that he wasn't the only one to blame, though. Rupertus, Bill, General Rupertus, and we mentioned this last week, you know, of all the battalion commanders and regimental commanders in the first Marine Division, all of whom were highly thought of. Rupertus was not exactly the most well-liked commanding officer. He was not the most well-liked commanding general. Most of the regimental and battalion commanders did not think well of him. And he is, you know, he he makes this big blustery claim. that's like, we're going to take this island in three or four days or whatever it was. And obviously that is not going to be the case here. He deserves a lot of this blame here. And Dave, you and I had talked about this via text over the last couple of weeks is that, you know, mainly the majority of the blame for the high casualties here obviously fall on the Japanese for obvious reasons, but the pushing, pushing, pushing bill, this falls on Rupertus. Yeah, I mean, he suffered from two major defects. The first one is, is in my reading of the history, like almost like he didn't care about the casualties, about the percentage of, you know, effectiveness of the units that, that lost, you know, 
30, 40, we'll talk about later, you know, 50% of their their operating um, forces. And so that was defect number one. Defect number two, much like Holland Smith, he didn't think much of the Army. And, and he had this, the, the 81st Division in reserve. And he kind of just sent off to, you know, take that other island. And, and you know, instead of reinforcing and, and relieving, no, we're going to do this. We're going to make uh, Peleliu a complete Marine show. And so he kept pushing guys like Puller, who he knew would respond, and he was cursing them out and chewing them out. This is Chesty Puller, and he's chewing Chesty Puller out, trying yeah, to get is. him to move faster. And Chesty Puller doesn't push back. He's, he's a, you know, Marine cheery eye as we say in the in the Navy Marine Corps, right? He'll he'll get it done. He'll do what he needs to do. And so you know. There's not and Marine, and Puller's not the only regimental commander that he does this to. He does it to all of them. And I mentioned this in previous episodes. Seth, I knew Puller's son, mm-hmm. who was a combat wounded Vietnam combat wounded Marine in a wheelchair when I knew him, who sadly committed suicide. You know, imagine being Chesty Puller's son, and you know, going seeing what you know Puller did in, at Peleliu. Nothing you could ever do could live up to this reputation of your dad and having to live with that, you know, so I'm sure it affected his judgment in Vietnam. And, and he may have said, if I hadn't been trying to live up to my dad, I might not have been wounded. It's just a horrible story from beginning to end, Seth. Yeah, it it really is. It really is. And, you know, Rupertus is, He's the one, like you were saying, Bill, he's the one that's constantly pushing, 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 pushing. And and you mentioned it in the last episode, and I, I put it in our notes, is that Rupertus was not exactly the sharpest tool when it came to judgment of terrain and the situation as it lay in front of him. And and this is a perfect example of that. You know, he comes ashore on D plus one, Rupertus does. And he felt like, for whatever reason, that the Japanese were about to fold, you know, like a house of cards. Um even though evidence pointed to the contrary, he, you know, evidence was saying that Japanese most certainly are not about to fold. Yes, we've made some breakthroughs, but there is no evidence that says, you know, they're, we're about to blow a hole in the line and just completely roll them up, you know, and, and when he makes this statement, Rupertus lands, as I said, on D plus one, he makes the statement. So, you know, we're, we're on the verge of a breakthrough here. What you got to remember is that, and this goes back to my poor judgment of terrain, poor judgment of the situation, situational awareness, as you always say, Bill, is that the high ground had not even been assaulted yet. The Umerbrogel had not even been touched yet. And the fact that he's saying, oh, we're about to make a breakthrough, when it was pretty evident the vast majority of the Japanese defenders were in those series of ridges up there, you know, it, it kind of defies the imagination as to why he even would have said that. Um he calls in, Rupertus does, he calls in reports from his regimental commanding officers, and he hears that the 5th, the 5th Marines, had suffered heavily, and the 7th seventh, seventh had suffered as well, but both had acquired their objectives, and this factors right into Polar and our conversation that we just had. He was visibly annoyed, Rupertus was visibly annoyed at the 1st Marines, specifically the 2nd and 3rd Battalions, not necessarily by their casualty figures, as you said, Bill, but by their lack of ability to keep up with the planned timetable, his timetable that he had publicly said, you know, we're going to get this done quick. We're going to get this done quick. It's going to be a short, tough, quickie, blah, 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 all this other stuff. The Japanese are making him look like a fool. And you're talking about pride 
We're talking about Chesty Puller's pride. This is Rupertus's pride saying, well, I said we were going to take this island in four days. And here we are. We're getting our asses handed to us by these Japanese who are tied in tighter than a tick inside this mountain. To your point, Bill, he, repur- he reportedly yelled at Chesty Puller, quote, referring to the 2nd Battalion 1st, can't they move any faster? God damn it, Lou, you got to kick ass to get results. You know that, God damn it, unquote. And this is Rupertus yelling at Chesty Puller. And he's yelling hmm. at Chesty Puller because his 2nd Battalion 1st Marines, under the command of Colonel Russell Hansowitz, who was by far an outstanding company, or uh, regimental commander, or battalion commander, I'm sorry, was listening to Chesty Puller on the morning of D plus two. Puller told Hansowitz, quote, I want that ridge before sundown, and I mean, God damn it, I want it. The ridge he is referring to, Bill, is the very first line of ridges in a series of ridges of what is called the Umer Brogel Mountain, Bloody Nose Ridge. This is Hill 200 that's being referred to on Marine maps. It was known to be a Japanese strong point of artillery, mortars, and machine guns. Hansowitz's 2-1 would be the first Marines to encounter the new Japanese tactics employed in the hinterland of Peleliu. Bill, we talked about this last week. The Japanese are no longer going to meet you at the water's edge and try and defeat the invasion. They're going to hold up on the inside, and we're about, the Marines are about to get a taste of that right here, aren't they? Yeah, they're learning, and you know, they, yeah, this they are. is... We, they adapt their tactics to what works. They realized, you know, in Saipan that, you know, we can make this really, really, really painful for the Americans. And then and in order to get the negotiating advantage, that's what they did. And they weren't, you know, they weren't trying to win per se. They were just trying to decimate and hope that that we, we, the pain threshold would be passed and we'd say, OK, we've got enough. Yeah. And 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 to a point, they, I mean, obviously that doesn't happen, but the, the casualties that mount here in Peleliu uh, are a clear example that their new defensive tactics are going to work. Now, as Hansowitz's 2-1's attack leads off, a Sherman and two LVTs, uh, these are LVTAs, lead the assault with a battalion close behind moving north quickly along a narrow, twisting road. Um, the first 300 yards were easy. You know, the, the Marines moved quickly. Uh, they only encountered sporadic small arms fire from above, keyword being above. Uh, all that changed as the lead V, all that changed rather as the lead vehicle reached the lower slopes of Hill 200. As the vehicles and men wheeled west to mount their assault on the hill, quote, as they always say, all hell broke loose. From seemingly every spot, in the ridge above, fire absolutely poured down on the Marines. Small artillery pieces appeared suddenly. Bill, you talked about this last week from caves that had like no kidding steel doors in front of them that would open up. The artillery would pop out fire and then close behind steel doors. It's like something you see in a video game. Um, within seconds, all three of the Marine vehicles had been knocked out and the infantry was pinned down. This is the first time that the Marines reach this type of defense in the Umar Brogel. And it's the 1st Marines, the 2nd Battalion, 1st Russell Hansowitz's people here. And Dave, the Marines are going to fall back on a tried and true tactic of which is to call in artillery and naval gunfire. But that is a tactic that while it worked on Guadalcanal and it worked on Cape Gloucester, it's not going to work here uh, at Peleliu, is it? No, so it, it... Well, a bit later it does come when they started bringing in direct fire. But right now, the, the uh, Japanese defenses 
they're in those caves. They're well fortified. They're prepared for the um, the tactics. I mean, one of the Japanese uh, commanders I read this. It almost goes back to the when you go to Vietnam War. They're you know hugging them by the belt. He said that's how we can uh, mitigate these American tactics. We can get them drink, bring them in, draw them in. And once we get them in close, then we can mitigate their um, supporting arms because they got to get us in and and fight us. So. Um, on this occasion, the battalion commander, they called in artillery fire, naval gunfire, um, and it started hitting uh, some of the, the Japanese positions, and they started take, uh, to effect to, to suppress the Japanese. The Marines began to work their way up the ridge, um, and the demo men and the corkscrew and blowtorch blow uh, techniques we were talking about, um, that's just a, I don't know, do you, you guys mention that in the other episodes? We've done it in the past, um, yeah. Well, in, in other events, yeah. Well, it's really going to start to become prevalent now, especially when you go into Iwo Jima and Okinawa, and, and we start to see it here that the Marines starting to adapt their techniques to take out these bunkers. Um, so you got to, the the court screw is the demolition teams and the bazookas and the BIR men basically hold them up in the blowtorches, the flamethrowers to go in and, and burn them out. Um, so the demolition men started throwing, in this case, they started hurling the charges in any open hole they saw. Um to blow these Japanese out in their caves. But as the men gained the ground, the Japanese infantry started popping out of their holes. And then once again, this close, in close um, hand-to-hand combat ensued. Um, as we'll see throughout the next number of weeks and or probably next week and a few days, they're going with slow and bloody. It's in 2-1, they moved up to Hill 200. Um, however, despite the fight, um, they had secured the hill. Um, but they were still taking fire from 200 because the Japanese are all around them and underneath them, sort of speak. You know, like yeah. they say in Iwo Jima, the Japanese wasn't on the island. They were in the island. And this yeah. is a good example. They're in Peleliu. They weren't on Peleliu at this stage. They're in Peleliu. Exactly. Um, it, it, I was going to say, and, that, and that's the key. Even when they take one hill, they're still surrounded by other hills. So it, it's, it's not like, you know, they're moving up in a steady line. They take one hill. And they're taking fire from three sides or even sometimes four sides when they work themselves into a trap. And it's just it's this infuriating, slow going, bloody, grueling process that seemingly doesn't gain much ground, you know, throughout the entire process, through the entire weeks as they're going along. And and the reason that we're pushing on this specifically is that the casualty situation here is starting to mount. There's a conversation between Hansowitz and Puller. That is rather telling, and this is this is documented fact. Uh, Puller calls Hansowitz. This is after the attack on Hill 200, and he says, "Quote: How are things going?" Hansowitz replied, "Quote: Not too good. I lost a lot of men. How many? I don't have a firm count yet, but I think a couple hundred, which was accurate. How many Japs did you kill?" Hansowitz replies, "Maybe 50." Puller explodes. He says, "Jesus Christ, Hansowitz! What the hell are you? What the hell are the American people going to think? You lost two hundred fine young Marines and killed only fi- only fifty. I'm putting you down for five hundred." Unquote. Casualty figures stated that two one had lost four hundred and twenty nine men between D Day and D plus two. It wasn't until late on the seventeenth that Puller finally requested reinforcements. He was fully aware that the first Marines had taken a frightful beating, yet he never did, at least at this stage, admit that fact. And this is, you know, and I, I had in the notes, why? With two question marks, why isn't Puller admitting that his guys are just taking a 
beating up here. I mean, 429 casualties in two days is huge. I mean, it's, it's huge. Why is he not? What is the theory here? Why is he not admitting the fact that he's getting his ass handed to him? Hey, it goes back to what I mentioned yeah. earlier. Um, you had Hubert, you had pride, you had push to, to take the objective. Um, at any cost and keep pushing, pushing, pushing that, that momentum, don't lose momentum, keep pushing, keep pushing. So, and once again, um, how much was communicated back to Puller? We don't know. It says here that there was uh, information was coming back to him. I'd say it was because Puller was probably right there. Uh, wasn't too far back. And um, once again, his leg probably kept him from actually going up there and, and surviving. So, so Bill, I think Bill, you, go back to his yeah. also pride, pride and hubris and, and just what we said, push, keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing. I can do this. Yeah, I, Dave, I don't deny that, but the success of that premise depends on the success on the battlefield. And to use mm -hmm. the Navy expression, you can't push a rope. And a combat ineffective unit, you know, is a combat ineffective unit. It doesn't matter how out. hard just pushes, right? He's not going to get them to, to, to succeed. And if he, they don't succeed, this snowballs, it cascades, right? Now the, now people do call into question the viability of the Marine Corps. And so, you know, so he's working against his own purposes here. And so, Back and says so in the it, corner. Yeah. absolutely, right? Trying to get out and of so, it. Uh, yeah, yes. And so Repertus is as well. And so, yeah. you know, it's self-defeating. And, and I guess that's where I was going to go with that. Repertus, no, remember, Repertus, he'd, he'd have, I'm sorry, Seth, real quick. He had a, he was assistant division commander in Guadalcanal. He had a, actually, he, he, obviously, he was he was good friends with, with Vandegrift. So he had a success there. He had a, a, a fairly good performance in Cape Gloucester. So he had his car. He's very, both of these guys are very ambitious. So he was potentially looking at be Commandant Marine Corps, being the next Commandant Marine Corps. So this was all about his reputation, all about his next job. Mm -hmm. So if he failed here, yeah, it's it. It for him. His whole career is gone. So once again, the, the the guys at this rank, as you know, they're very ambitious, especially to reach at that top. And yeah, I, career officers. I, hmm. I, I I can understand that. I can understand that completely. But my the point I'm trying to make here is their hubris, their yeah. ambition, cost lives, and that and lives. that's that's irreplaceable. I mean, you can't. That's inexcusable. I mean, you know, yeah. if if. Trying to fight for the survival of the Marine Corps, fine, but you're 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 getting American boys killed because you got a thick head, and 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 that's that's yeah. that's the point here, you know. And Seth, your your man Eichelberger, I don't think you know would have done this. And so Not my a point is, yeah, I agree with Dave that that um, ambition exists at these levels, but not with everybody, and it's not right. It is a sin. It's not and right so, at all. No. Yeah, these guys, you know, um, I, I I haven't seen evidence of this kind of ambition in today's military to the extent where people are willing to trade lives, maybe because it would be more known what was happening now than it was then. There was no Internet back then. And, you know, maybe you, you have more of an opportunity to shape the narrative before it reaches public perception. And so people were a little bit more forward leaning with 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 bad decisions then for their own gain. So, um, yeah, this, this is really bad. I mean, it, we talked about Nimitz and bad decision to go to Peleliu in the first place, bad decisions at the, 
at the division commander level, bad decisions at the regiment, regimental commander level, and it's the Marines who suffer, the Marines and corpsmen, Navy corpsmen yep. who suffer. Yeah. Think about pulling real quick. He wasn't a butcher. Now, you, you get some guys who said, oh, he's a butcher. He, he didn't like, he didn't cheer for his men. He had no respect for him. He did. In fact, Puller was a very he, uh, individual type guy. I mean, he'd pull the people aside and, and he loved his enlisted Marines. But you say, well, how, how, that's contradictory. He would throw them into combat and, and to die. Puller was so, I guess, hardcore and so professional. He's seen Marines. Yes, we're there, but we're there potentially to die, but we're going to need to do our job. They're expendable to fulfill the mission, just like himself was expendable. To fulfill the mission because he was always up front with his guys and and, and taking the risk of, but that whole mentality and i was taught in the marine corps and the first thing you know is the mission comes first the welfare of the troops second you have to do that as a, as a combat officer i mean because if you don't you'll get no nothing achieved if you put the welfare before the risk but once again i'm not i'm not trying to to defend polar i'm just trying to look at it objectively of how he was thinking but he's no, definitely not a butcher and he didn't hate his men because remember but you get other people who 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 are show, I guess, senior commanders who you look back and go, well, this guy, he has no, he never did anything for the troops. He never liked the troops, never did anything for the troops. But that's the type of person who's willing to throw lives away. And plus never share the same risk as as these guys you're actually asking to, to put themselves in harm way. But poor, it was all in. He goes, we're all sharing the risk. We're doing it. We're all focused. He, he had tunnel, as we call it, in my job as a policeman, years and years, he had tunnel vision. He had the red mist. He was focused mm-hmm. on that. He wasn't looking at the side. He just focused tunnel vision. Yeah, and situational awareness. To to be clear, I'm not we're not trying to crucify Puller. I, I'm because the, the one of the remaining questions about Peleliu since then to now is what the hell happened? You know, from from a leader who was adored by his men in Chesty Puller to, you know, guys who literally cursed his name to their dying day because of this event. Something, there was a drastic change somewhere. Something happened. And I understand what you're saying about, you know, the mission is, the mission is paramount. That, that's, that's obvious. That's why you're there. And Puller did love his men, no doubt, but, but something somewhere in there clicked somewhere and he spoke and, about and his brother just figure out his brother in guam I his bro- his brother had been killed on guam and he and apparently he did have a he, you know that that definitely affected and affected him and that may be part of it i don't know yeah. nobody will know it, it, i guess is the point of what i'm trying to make but the, the fact of the matter remains is that he keeps throwing his men in there and admittedly he's doing it under orders he's not like he's just randomly throwing his people willy-nilly he's not doing that he's doing them under orders from Robertus, and they're just getting chopped to pieces and the the difficult part about what i just what we just talked about about hill 200 and hansowitz's people finally taking the hill is that later on on the morning of d plus three the japanese attack and push hansowitz's people right back off of that hill so all those casualties in that time and that blood that was expended is a further waste and, that, and that's going to continue with heartbreaking regularity throughout this entire campaign and and to be clear it's important to note here that while polar was clearly he was being obstinate and he was and that's that's undeniable he was under and bill you can comment on this he was under tremendous pressure from william Rupertus. Rupertus was just yeah. pouring it on him and in Talk to, you know, in a scene that's all too familiar to Saipan, and we went on, you know, that whole debacle many, many a time. 
Rupertus's XO calls Puller to verify that Puller understands the orders for the next day, which was to tell, take Hills 200 and 210. Puller replied in the affirmative and says to Selden, quote, we're going to take ground tomorrow without replacements, but we're going to add 10 to 15% to our casualties. Don't forget that, unquote. This is what Puller is telling them. So to your point, Dave, he's, and again, it's, it's, it's massively confusing here because he reports casualties that aren't there. And and by that I said you know at D Day he said oh I don't know we had like forty casualties and the casualties were actually four hundred, and then you know and and he, so he's not reporting accurate casualty figures yet he is clearly at this stage when he's on the radio with Selden, with uh, Colonel Selden, Rupertus's XO he's very clearly aware of the casualties and is aware of the situation so, and that's what I was trying to get at is that clearly something something ain't right with Louis Puller at this point. Something's not right with him either mentally or physically or both. And then again, you know, Rupertus is just adding fuel to the fire. Uh, Bill, tell us about, you know, this attack that Puller is going to lead again the following day when he was assured that no replacements were to be found. However, there were replacements there available, were there not? Well, yeah, I mean, we've got to hold the Army Division if that's what you're talking about in the 81st. And so, you know, if, if we were willing to land them and eventually, spoiler alert, we will, but only out of desperation when all this thing falls apart. Yeah, so, you know, Hans, Hansen men took Hill 205 at little less. Puller, remember, he's limping, his leg is all swelled up. Aiden Toe goes out on foot at that night and visits Hansenwitz. The meeting went well according to those there, but Puller did not relent, telling Hansewitz again, we press the attack tomorrow morning at 0800. There's no change in our orders. Full speed, use every man. It's important to note here that while Puller was clearly being obstinate, he was under tremendous pressure, as you said, right? This is where he says, we're going to add 10 to 15% to our casualties. Right. Puller was assured that no replacements were to be found. That statement was not true. With the 7th Marines, all of them now committed elsewhere. There's the 81st, Aguar had been captured already, and the 81st was cooling its heels. Rupertus was insistent that the fight on Peleliu would be a Marine Corps fight only. We talked about that. Yeah. By the end of day four, first Marines had lost an, an astonishing 1,500 men killed or wounded since D-Day. Reinforcements on day four with men from 2-7. Puller's, Puller's units were somewhat stronger but severely depleted. He was aware, at least at this point, on how much his men had suffered, but he felt a breakthrough was close. He has Rupertus disease. He figured that the Japanese would crumble once more of the high ground, once the more the high ground had been captured. Hence, one of his reasons for the constant pressure. And so he keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. And so the following day, another assault was launched, this time with a 30-minute prep bombardment by artillery and naval gunfire and air support. As soon as the Marines moved out at 0700, they found themselves in the same situation as before. Marines moving up came against steep cliffs riddled with caves and holes that seemingly all concealed Japanese infantry. As the riflemen closed the positions, they came under ferocious fire from above you know, a different verse, same, same as the first here, Seth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're just taking a pounding. And and, and that's, 
Puller, again, he, he's pushing his men, and and he's just – they're not making any progress. And he's not the only one, too, by the way. Wait, just wait, because the Umar Brogel is going to eat every single Marine regiment in the 1st Division. But we're focusing on the 1st Marines here. And, and it's just – it's heartbreaking that no matter how much ground is occupied, they lose it almost within 24 hours or less sometimes throughout this entire fight. You know – Again, we're going to talk about the terrain. Let's talk about the terrain of the Umar Brogel here. You know, the the terrain, Dave, was incredibly rugged. We talked about, you know, some of the jungle swamp-like terrain on southern end of Peleliu, the flat ground of the airfield. The Umar Brogel is, you can't even describe it without showing pictures and footage of it. It looks like something from, like, you know, a, 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 another planet. I mean, it, the, the, that's what added to the horror of this entire fight doesn't it isn't it yeah so um i think in the pre-planning or you know when it had a jungle vegetation on it like a, they thought it was a plateau it was nice and i wouldn't say flat but um, smooth and it wasn't until the naval gunfire and um and i think you guys talked about in the last episode that um some of the vegetation started to go off and they could see it and it was um i forgot what one marine described it as um it was just jaggedy, rockety coral. Everything was everything was coral. Um, there was a lot of nooks and crannies in it and crevices. And it said something looks something out of like uh, out of hell, out of a Dante's Inferno, so to speak. And, yeah. Um, it probably very nasty to fight in. It was nasty to fight in. Imagine the coral itself. Um, you got the coral fragmentation. The poor Marines are trying to crawl over it, doing low crawl, and they're cutting themselves up. And I don't know if you ever had coral cuts been in the ocean. And that's nasty enough, but these guys are just like hitting the ground, running in it, falling down. That's why you see some of the photos. All their um, pants and clothes are ripped up. They've got coral cuts all over them. And then once the um, a grenade hits it or a shell hits it, it goes into a lot of shrapnel. And plus, it, one Marine describes it being like hit with a sandblaster with the um, small Japanese grenades going off in that coral. So it's all amplified. And then the Japanese are in all of these tunnels that interconnect and pop up and around. Um, and and like I said before, they designed to, to funnel these Marines and in these, um, these kill zones to bring them in close to suppress the artillery and mitigate the supporting arms they had with their, their, um, their um, close air support in the artillery very well planned so it's a nasty to, uh, terrain to fight in and then once again then you got to go up and you got to go straight back down and you know you, you can't tie in flanks because there's really no areas to tie your flanks in the japanese can do their great infiltration techniques around you so um yeah yeah you no, can't I, um you can't dig in i mean you just pile rocks in front of you the yeah. rocks don't stop those bullets very well they just you can't they dig in the coral because there's no hardly any topsoil a lot of that right. yeah i mean it shreds your uniforms it's your boondockers get all cut up um i mean it's like fighting in a parking lot you can't you know just there was no place there's no cover there might be concealment but with, with rocks piled in front of you but there's no cover the Absolutely. Japanese are in their like little hidey holes and they could jump out and grab you. And, and that's why it's so much um, hand-to-hand combat. So, um, Seth, there's a part here I can read about the, how the fighting, you mean to describe, to describe yeah, how the yeah. fighting was? Yeah, it was um, primal. It was primal. Yeah. And one Marine um, actually gave an example. He was on his way up the hill and he stopped and he kicked at something near his feet. 
the Marine stopped, um, stooped over, had a look, and he grabbed the he grabbed the Jap- it was a Japanese soldier. Um, he, so he grabbed the Japanese and threw him off the cliff. Um, and the Marines below the fight cheered and saw the Marine, uh, the Japanese fly in over and in over the cliff. Um, and the Japanese would be in these positions and it's so steep in some of these cliffs, they could just roll the grenades down um, to the Marines. And then the Marines had to wait for the, the um, grenades to go off, just like we discussed. No cover, really. And the cover they did was you know, added to the effect of the shrapnel. And then they continued their attack up. So it was basically two steps up, one step back. It was very slow, very costly. But finally, um, one of the hills, 210, was taken by 21 and 27. Just like you see in all throughout this battle, once you take it, the Japanese do vicious counterattacks to take it back. Um, and then the Japanese artillery and the friendly fire artillery. That was another thing, because once again, these Japanese tactics of, of bringing these Marines and hugging a belt, so to speak, and some of the friendly fire would actually land on some of these Marines, as we've seen, um, as we'll see later, too. But even all these casualties, Marine Esprit de Corps, Marine grit, determination, and guts, they still held on. Um, and, it, and a lot of these units would have would have broken up already. It's just amazed to me that, you know, you're going on with losing 30 to 40 to 50% casualties and you're still an effective unit. That just shows you the, the I wouldn't say fanaticism, but the training and the morale of these Marines to, to hold together and still fight on. So, you know, the fighting on the ridges, as we talked about, guys, it's 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 back and forth, back and forth. Like you said it perfectly, Dave, two steps forward, one step back. And it's and it's consistent throughout this entire time, throughout the entire campaign that the fighting on the Umer, in, on, around the Umerbrogel is just hell on earth. And the experience of the 1st Marine Regiment is encapsulated, really, in my opinion, with the experience of one company specifically, and that being Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, led by a guy that I knew quite well, Everett P. Pope. I mentioned him at the very beginning. He also was a graduate of Bowdoin College uh, with Andy Haldane. He was classmates, class of 1941, to, of course, Haldane's K, K Company, 3rd Battalion, 5th CO. Um, on the morning of September the 19th, the 1st Marines again attacked the ridges. Progress that day was measured in yards and barely that. After the normal 0800 assault ground to a halt, an order was passed at 1200 to C Company, 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, to assault and seize Hill 100 which was a steep, somewhat isolated knob of coral that held a commanding view of the East Road near the 1st Battalion's right front. In command of C-11 was my old friend Everett P. Pope. Captain Pope was a graduate, as I said, of Bowdoin College, and like so many other old breed command, company commanders, he was a veteran of two campaigns. On Guadalcanal, he served as a machine gun platoon commander, and on Gloucester, he received company. He received command of C Company, which he, of course, obviously retained while on Peleliu. Now, like most rifle companies, guys, uh, in the 1st Marines, Pope C Company had been whittled down to less than 90 effectives from their original 235 by the 19th of September. This was four days after D-Day, or four days on, on the campaign. C Company should have been relieved, as should the entire the entirety of the 1st Marines by this point, but that was not to be as yet. For the day's action, Pope and C Company were assigned to Hansowitz's 2-1. Their mission to a slip, their mission was to slip out ahead of the main force and take Hill 100. 
as we have seen already, this is not an easy task. You can say it's going to, this is your mission. It's rather simple. Go accomplish it. But as we know, this is not an easy task. Hill 100, Bill, it lays almost kind of in the middle of everything. And you're going to hear a lot of familiar names. Uh, tell us about some of these these locations here. Yeah, it's the rear of five sisters and to the left of the East Road of Pope and Met and his men could take Hill 100, it might provide an opening to hit the core of the Japanese positions in the Umabrungle. Pope approached Hill 100 through a swamp, <laughs> as if things aren't bad enough. And when they got near the hill, they received heavy machine gun fire, forced to withdraw and regroup. Pope tried again, this time from a different approach. Supported by Sherman tanks, his men made their approach on the two enemy positions that initially held them up over a period of two hours. In the mess that followed, the Shermans were either destroyed or disabled, leaving the infantry to take the positions alone. Pope said, we can either sit here and keep getting hit while we wait on more tanks, or we could take our chances and run across a few at a time. So what he did is crazy. He sent one squad at a time across the area, telling them to run at a full sprint across as fast as you can. Don't slow down until you get to the foot of the hill. This brazen move apparently surprised the Japanese enough that every single one of Pope's men made it across one squad at a time. Unscathed, pausing at the base of Hill 100, the Marines began the charge up the hill. Sliding to the right of the hill, Pope was able to shield some men from Japanese fire, but not enough. Even though they made it to the top of the hill with incredible speed, the action took a heavy toll killing or wounding many of Pope's men, leaving a scant, you're going to get this number, 25 men at the top of one hill of Hill 100, Seth. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, again, and this this is why I chose, not just because I knew Everett Pope, but, but because of the fact that this action is a microcosm of the entire 1st Marine Regiment experience on Peleliu. And this is the easiest way to describe the absolute hellhole that these guys went through here. Once at the top of the hill, Pope realized that the maps that he had been given were wrong, deadly wrong. Hill 100 was not a single hill, but the nose of a long ridge that was dominated by a higher piece of ground just to the north. Who's on that higher piece of ground? The Japanese. The Japanese. Now yeah. exposed to fire from the high ground, Pope had a problem on his hands. Japanese machine gunners less than 50 yards away opened fire. Pope and his men were in the middle of a Japanese crossfire. If you, I don't think we have a map of this exact action, Bill, but but if, if you I look at the so. area, and I'll pull up a general area map of Peleliu, and I'll zoom in on this spot. It literally is surrounded on three sides by Japanese. As night began to fall, Pope realized that not only was he in a crossfire, but he was unable to contact battalion headquarters, nor could he get a hold of his mortars and machine guns. He and his men on top of the rise would be all alone all night long. Kind of sounds like George Hunt, but it ain't. It's just another repetition of the same story. In his journal, Ev Pope wrote, quote, the line is flimsy as hell and it's getting dark. We have no wires and need grenades badly, unquote. Armed with rifles, two BARs, and a few dozen hand grenades and only one machine gun, Pope's men would have to have to be crafty to defend against the Japanese attack that was sure to come. And this is a famous story, but it's God's honest truth. He told his men to grab rocks, not to throw at the Japanese, but to 
trick them. He figured that if his guys threw enough rocks that the Japanese would duck thinking that they were grenades, and that would give the Marines just enough time to actually inflict casualties on the Japanese, not if they came, but when. Occupying a piece of ground the size of a tennis court, Pope's Marines tied in tight and waited. Once it was dark, no surprise here, the Japanese started coming. Initial Japanese attacks were in single or double teams of infiltrators who tried to eliminate individual Marine positions. All of the infiltrating attacks were repulsed. Shortly thereafter, the Japanese started sending, started sending teams of 20 or 30 in headlong attacks on Pope's perimeter. Now, you got to remember, once when I show this map, you'll understand why they only sent 20 or 30 guys, because they're running damn near down a road. The majority of the enemy attacks came straight down the ridge right at Pope's front. He desperately needed artillery support, but couldn't get it, not only because he couldn't contact anybody, but because the Japanese were so damn close, they couldn't drop any artillery in front of them for fear of hitting the Marines in their own positions. However, one mortar platoon near the foot of the ridge was able to provide some help. The mortar men lobbed over well over a thousand rounds near Pope's perimeter throughout the night, offering some sort of assistance. But aside from the mortars, Pope was on his own. Not surprisingly... Go ahead. That'd probably been sixty millimeter mortar. Those it's the number of them can plus that close. Yeah, yeah. Any anything's better than what they got, which is jack oh, yeah, squat yeah. at the top yeah. of this hill. And 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 this is one of the legendary fights in Marine Corps history. Uh, the the fighting, not surprisingly, as it has been shown throughout this event, gets down to hand to hand. Two Japanese entered the position occupied by Lieutenant Francis Burke and Sergeant James McClarnas. Burke took a bayonet through his leg while simultaneously beating his attacker senseless while McClarnas beat the other to death with his rifle. Together, the two Marines threw the Japanese over the cliff face. The fighting, you know, Dave, you talked about um, the one Marine picking up the Japanese and throwing them over the cliff. This is ha this is what happens all night long, all night long to Everett Pope's guys. While the Marines did use the rocks to confuse the Japanese, by the morning, they were using the rocks to defend themselves. They were throwing rocks at the Japanese as they were attacking them. They were beating the Japanese with fists, e-tools, rocks, whatever they could find because they were running out of ammunition. Uh, they're throwing grenade boxes at these guys, helmets, whatever they could find. It literally was something like you would see in a Viking battle. It was just absolute primal warfare at its absolute worst. The Marines continually threw their attackers over the cliff face throughout the night and into the morning. Japanese fire continually focused on the lone Marine machine gun, which was taken over by the assistant gunner when the original gunner was hit. The weapon continually had stoppages due to the overheating, but the gunner kept the weapon, weapon fire running as long as he could. By daylight, though, Dave, it, it, it's pretty clear that Pope's men are either going to need to be reinforced or have to be pulled out. Uh, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that in your Marine Corps history, you've been told about this fight at some point in your, in your, your career. Yes, I've learned about it. In fact, I was just thinking it was a very similar one. I was just wondering if it was a, uh, an occurrence happened in Vietnam called Jimmy Howard and, and Howard's Hill. He was a reconnaissance um, um, leader, his most heavily um, decorated platoon in Marine Corps history. And they were caught up on a little hill. And they were throwing hand grenades and they're throwing rocks in between. So I'm just wondering if Jimmy Howard picked that up. I have to go reread that. But yeah, this is very, very similar to both of these. But yeah, I've heard about this. Um, yeah. It's just amazing that the whole thing about 
the two when they popped up in the Japanese machine guns. And when the machine guns fifty yards away and they're caught in a crossfire, I'm thinking fifty yards away from a machine gun is just unreal. It's just crazy. And then the whole thing about the guys are um they're fighting hand to hand and they're running out of ammunition and yeah, it's just it's just unreal. But yeah, I've definitely heard of this one. So yeah, it's it's a hairy yeah. situation. It's a hairy situation. So of the twenty five guys, Bill, that he brings to the top of the hill. Hope only counted 12 men still able to fight by morning. He yeah. finally, he, so he finally, finally does communication. communication. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, he finally gets contact with the battalion headquarters, and he receives orders to withdraw him and his 12 men. Pretty much out of ammunition. Hope had only one round left in his 1911 pistol. As he said, they weren't going to take me alive. That's why he kept that one round. The Marines scrambled off the hill as they did so. The Japanese swarmed the positions of C, C Company had held throughout the night. So what did that get us? You know, what advantage was all of this? On the way down the hill, what was left of C Company came under fire with Pope's radioman getting killed by his side as he talked on the radio. Running all the way down, the remnants of C Company found cover by a stone wall near the road below. As Pope caught his breath... And looked at his men, he only had nine men left. And of these nine men, most were wounded, including, including Pope, who'd, who had shrapnel in his legs. So the rem remnants of C Company were pulling themselves together when at 1630, they received an order to attack up a ravine, the same ridge they had just left. Only when regiment learned that Pope had a grand total of 15 men, two officers that he was able to cobble together from all the stragglers. That's all that was left of C Company. Was the order rescinded? Everett Pope would be awarded the Medal of Honor for his leadership on the night of September 20th, 1944, Seth. Absolutely legendary. It's a good example, Absolutely too, legendary. about, it's just crazy. But it's a good example how the, the lack of communication and the, just the fog of war and the, just confusion about the the number of I men they thought he had. Yeah. Klaus was was here today. <laughs> yeah, big time. Yeah. Big time. So shortly after Ev Pope's action, the main assault for the first Marines again kicks off, aiming at the same positions that Pope had held throughout that night. Puller poured everything he had left into this assault. He was still banking on the idea that the Japanese were close to breaking. I'm not sure why, but he was. The assault was prefaced by naval gunfire on the ridge that included one of Oldendorf's battle wagons throwing shells into the mix. The battalions of the first, the battalions of the first Marines were so decimated that even when they combined two battalions together, they did not have enough men to form one solid battalion. Nevertheless, the Marines gathered their gear and moved out. The men by now were a shell of themselves. Stumbling forward, their eyes were sunken, glazed over with the 2,000-yard stare, Bill, that you were talking about before. Almost resigned to their fate, they moved toward the objectives like a herd of zombies. There's a quote here that I have to read, and it's from a guy named, he was a private in the First Marines named Russell Davis. After all of this is uh, finished, he writes, quote, I picked up the rifle of a dead Marine and I went up the hill. I didn't worry about death anymore. I'd resigned from the human race. I only wanted to be as far forward as any man when my turn came. As a fighting outfit, the 1st Marine Regiment was finished. We were no longer human beings. I fired at anything that moved in front of me, friend or foe. I had no friends. I just wanted to kill. 
unquote. The guys, for humanity. And, and that's what I was going to get to, Bill. And, and it's, it's a perfect thank you for saying that. And, and that's the thing is that the fighting has worn down. And this goes back to what we were talking about, Chesty Puller, earlier. You know, something ain't right. Something has clicked. And the fighting has worn these guys down, not just in terms of casualties, obviously, but also in terms of just being able to function, not just as a human being or not just as a Marine, but as a human being, these guys are barely able to function at this point. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, yeah, too, yeah. Sorry. go ahead. Go ahead. Dave. Now I'm saying you got to remember too. this. We talk about hardcore. This is the hardcore of the hardcore. These are the guys who still survive. These are the guys who, who, who miss being killed and wounded, but also these guys haven't cracked yet. Yeah, these are the hardcore guys. These are the guys, the most mentally toughest guys they've got left. You can you can see here, because yeah. most and of the guys were, were cracked, and and even these so, guys are starting to wilt. That that's course. that's the point. Is even yeah. these guys are starting to yeah. fold. That's what you I'm know, we made to say. A, this is the hardcore, and they're just losing it. Yeah, yeah. And, and we made a big point in the first episode about Peleliu talking about how the First Marine Division at that time in 1944 was regarded as the finest light infantry division on the planet earth and and again yeah we're going to get argument on it but you know suck it because they were but at this point you're seeing that you know even as you said dave the hard of the hard are starting to break because this is something that no american unit in either theater had faced to this point you know guadalcanal was one thing gloucester was another tarawa even was another thing anzio is one thing Normandy is one thing. Nobody had faced anything like Peleliu to this point. Nobody. And even the best of the best are starting to fold like lawn chairs here. And the attack that two that that uh, that Puller's men mount here, Bill, it's second verse same as the first. I mean, it it nothing happens. Yeah, it went virtually nowhere. Barely any ground was gained. Casualties continued to mount. Japanese Colonel Nakagawa radioed the higher headquarters that the Marines were again put to rout, receiving heavy losses, and he wasn't wrong. He was 100% right. Nakagawa and his subterranean defensive network had beaten down the 1st Marine Regiment. The attack made only one real gain, and that was not substantial. 2-7 struggled against the sheer cliffs and heavy fire, but by midday had gained the crest of a ridge. That's it. Listed on the maps as Hill 260, just in front of, uh, of the soon-to-be-named Death Valley. Later that afternoon, 2-1 and 1-1 were relieved by 1-7, 7th Regiment. They would soon be relieved altogether. On September 21st, General Geiger finally paid a visit to the front lines. Geiger had become dismayed at several things, that, not the least of which was the soaring casualty rate coming from the 1st Marines and the lack of progress. Rupertus had been informing Geiger that the Japanese were on the verge of breaking. He'd been saying that from the beginning. Casualties notwithstanding, and at any moment the battle would be over and won, Geiger says. Geiger sensed something was wrong now, and he wanted to see for himself what was really going on. He did not think very highly of Rupertus, and in some scholarship, considered relieving Rupertus after D plus two, but thought that relieving the division commander at the height of the fight would not be good for morale, even though morale was zero. Rupertus had been forthright regarding casualty figures, and Geiger knew it. 
personally reviewing the casualty reports, Geiger was aghast at what he saw. Specifically, he was shocked at the first Marines and their casualties. He mentioned to Rupertus that they needed to be relieved, to which Rupertus seemingly ignored him. Not so subtle suggestion that the that General Geiger had given him. Colonel Lewis Field, Lieutenant Colonel Lewis Field's Division Assistant Chief of Staff, agreed and told Rupertus that they needed to relieve the 1st Regiment, and they needed to relieve them with the 81st Division's 321st Regimental Combat Team and should be sent to the front in their place. Almost unbelievably, Rupertus demurred, becoming highly agitated with the Corps commander that his division would finish this fight, Seth. He yeah. can't take, you know, an order at this point. It's just like he deflects everything. Yeah. And, and Dave, this goes back to your point yeah. earlier about pride, you know, and, and it's it's the fateful pride. Uh, you know, I mean, when I, I said this multiple times on this show that, you know, when you got two guys telling you you're drunk, you need to hand over the car keys. And he's got, you know, he's looking at casualty figures that are, Unmatched to this point in, in in World War II for the Marine Corps, they they really are, you know, for a, for a time period in which they're fighting, and this this you know he's saying Geiger is saying you know you need to pull these people out of here and you need to put this Army Regimental Combat Team, which by the way is just sitting there doing jack squat and ready to go, you need to put them into the line like now, and Rupertus just continually blows that off. I'll say something real quick on this. Um, yeah, sure. Well, Geiger, as you know, I think he, I think you guys might have mentioned it in episode one. Geiger was there in the first few hours. He was on a beach, right. remember? Right. He right. visited, and, um, but he couldn't get to the first Marine. But then, but throughout, this wasn't the only time he came after day one. He would come a few times um, and and visit the lines, and and which Geiger would. I mean, he had a tendency, and they didn't want to lose their corps commander. But correct me if I'm wrong, but Geiger, the whole plan was to have the uh, Initially, they didn't want the, the Ruth Purtis says, no, I don't want the 321st. They wanted the three, 321st was offered as a, um, a reserve regiment. He goes, no, I'll just take, um, I think, 37 is my division reserve. Right. But I think day two, the um, the 81st Division Commander Mueller come to, um, was it, is it Wilkinson? Is that correct, Admiral? Is it Wilkinson? Wilkinson? Who is the yes. amphibious force commander? He came to yes. Wilkinson and said, look, we want to take Angar. And then they came to Geiger and they said, okay, we want to take Angar. And Geiger goes, no, hold on a minute. The, the, the situation is isn't is still in doubt. We haven't secured this island yet. Can can I just have the 321st reserve? And he was overruled by the um the Admiral. And that's why they committed the, the um invasion of Angar. But right. then they had the 321st. But once again, we said that um he kept pushing it back, pushing it back. Then then to give a little background on Rapertus too, I mean. I think I mentioned before he was suffering too at the time because yes I don't know if we got it it's in this one but Bucky Harris remember the regimental commander might cover in that episode where he comes in comes on on him and, and sees him crying in the in the um, command post I think we'll cover it in the next episode a bit about his mental state at the time I think this is a little bit later in the campaign so I don't want to go too much into that but yeah once again it's that pride and hubris no we can do it we can do it and then another thing too. Geiger in his own, in his own um, memoirs and his own writings said he didn't want to relieve Rupertus too because right. he didn't want to be the only division commander to be Marine division commander to be relieved. 
at that stage and, and later on in the campaign. Yeah. But yeah, the and, word and, and, wouldn't get back to Geiger and Geiger. Geiger has a bit to blame here because he is the division, or sorry, the, the core commander. has been more directive and, and pushed it more, but we don't know what was going on behind the scenes with these guys. So finally yeah, something, someone's made a decision. Yeah, I, I can't comment on the on the personal interaction between the two, but I, I can say that, that you know, again, Robertus is, is, he's out of touch with reality here. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, the first Marines are, are, shot literally they're they're done they're completely done i bet in fact pulled out day two they should be well, pulled yeah, out when yeah, they were yeah agree 100 percent yeah. agree but by now you know they are they are done and like you just said bill combat and effective and they are they are combat and effective and the fact that he continued to deny that and even when you got your boss saying you need to get these guys out of here you know, he's making the suggestion. He's not saying, I'm ordering you to get these guys out of here. He's leaving it in the hands of Robertus, and he's saying, you really need to get these guys out of here, and you got this 321st over here. Mm. And Robertus continues to say, nah, we got this. That's a sign of being completely out of touch with reality. And, you know, because he knew how much these guys are suffering and that the Pullers unit was shot as a fighting unit. At this point, when Rupertus is like, you know, he demurs on the suggestion that the 321st comes in, Geiger gets in a Jeep and he goes up to the front. He wants to go see Chesty Puller, and that's exactly what he does. Um, once at the 1st Marines headquarters, Geiger is absolutely shocked at the appearance of Chesty Puller. Uh, as you said, Dave, his his leg was about double its normal size, causing Puller serious pain and you know, fever. Uh, he's limping around, he's hobbling around like he's got one leg, uh, grimacing in pain the entire time. Uh, he stands to greet Geiger. He's got no shirt on because it's, you know, 115 friggin' degrees in the shade out there. Uh, his eyes are sunken. He's absolutely smoked. He's absolutely exhausted. And Geiger, who's aware, critically aware, of the casualty status of Puller's regiment, asks Chesty Puller how he was doing. Puller replied they were fine. Geiger says, <laughs> uh, do you need reinforcements? And Puller rep replies, and I quote, we are doing fine with what we have. At that, Geiger shook Puller's hand and got back in his Jeep. He'd seen enough. He goes back to Rupertus's headquarters and tells him, quote, the 1st Marines are finished. The 321st is coming in, unquote. In other words, I gave you the option. You didn't take the option. Now I'm making the command call, and this is what's going to happen, whether you like it or not. And that is exactly mm -hmm. what happens. Within 48 hours, the Army comes ashore. Geiger, it's, too. Obviously, with the casualty counts of the first Marines, it had a major impact on it. But the, I read in another account that that hit the whole state of Puller, and that was probably one of the major catalysts. Once he seen Puller, and, and yes. Puller was out of it, and he goes, "Man, yes. if Chesty Puller's out of it, the hardest guy we know, that's it. It's no longer they, they got to come out because yeah, they've 100%. lost the command too." Yeah, so that, it just that, shows you how much he thought of, of Puller, and he's like, mm, "This is bad." That conversation that he had when Puller says, "Oh no, we're doing fine," and and Geiger's keenly aware of the casualties that that sealed the deal. That was like, "Nope, that's it. You're you're done. You're Touch out." Reality, yeah, He's completely. Gone. So, Bill, on September 22nd, a guy that we mentioned very early in this episode, and we're going to talk about him again next week, Captain Andy Haldane of K35 is alerted that. Uh, his company, along with the majority of the Fifth Marines, would be moving back to the front lines. Uh, they did not know where on the island they were headed, but the ridges were the obvious spot. 
at this point, at least that's what they thought. Obviously, there's an interlude in there, and we'll get to that next week. K-3-5 Sergeant Jen McHenry, another friend of mine, said, quote, I, have been in, I had been envying the 1st Marines because we had heard they were going back to Pavuvu. Then I saw the poor bastards, and I didn't envy them anymore, unquote. Yeah. Gene, Gene, Gene Sledge. Gene Sledge. Yeah. yeah, he said of the 1st Marines, companies look like platoons, platoons look like squads. I saw a few officers. I couldn't help but wondering if the same fate awaited the 5th Marines on those awful ridges. So as Haldane's K Company moved on one side of the road, they passed Pope's C Company on the other side, as, and both of them, Bodwin, uh, Haldane barely recognized his college classmate. He said, hey, Ev, is that really you? Pope's eyes were vacant and distant, and he snapped back to life when he recognized his old buddy. He said, Good to see you, Andy. Where are you headed? Haldane replied, someplace near the northern tip of the island, I hear. Their conversation lasted only a few min minutes longer, and Pope said, hope you make it. With luck, maybe we'll both be home for Thanksgiving or Christmas anyway. The two men stared at one another for a moment, and Haldane said, see you stateside. If, I get there be if you get there before I do, tell everyone I said hello. So the first Marines spent three days on Purple Beach, mainly resting before they were shipped out, getting aboard those LCVPs. They were brought out to ships that transported them back to Pavuvu. One Marine clambered aboard transport and was almost immediately asked by a sailor, <laughs> I'm going to be embarrassed by the Navy here right now. Hey, Marine, got any souvenirs to trade? The Marine, wearing a tattered, blood-stained set of dungarees and wearing a two-week beard grabbed the seat of his pants and said, yeah, my, my ass, Swabby, that's my souvenir. I'm coming home with my ass. I ain't trading it to nobody. And that's the end of this bit of the story of Peleliu, Seth. Yeah, and and obviously those that Marine that he's referring to was one from the 1st Marine Regiment, the shattered remnants of the 1st Marine Regiment. You know, that's this is... Quick on, on that one, sorry to show you, another indication how much pull was out of it when they pulled them back on purple beach to have three days of rest after the first day puller went around and told everyone all right rest up boys we're going back in as soon as yep. we're rested yep. and that just shows you a bit how how out of touch of reality they were but luckily that was overruled very quickly by the division yeah. staff officers and no you're not going back in yeah, I'm I'm glad you said that because that I'd forgotten to put that in the notes and I'd forgotten to even mention that. But yeah, they Fuller believed that they were going to be sent back to the front lines and and they were just back on the beach for a couple of days rest, even though, you know, he knew full well. So I mean it was it was a mess. And and the thing with Peleliu, and we we've said this as we've gone back, you know, with text messages over the last couple of weeks preparing for this episode, is that it's heartbreaking because it's the destruction of a Marine division. And it is the entire division by the end of the campaign, uh, you know, for little to no gain. And, and you see these stories, you know, I talk about Everett Pope. That's why I wanted to highlight him, not just because he was a buddy, but because, you know, that's a microcosm of the first Marines. You know, you suffer this absolute bloodletting to take this hill. You take the hill. And then because of the casualties that you sustain, you can't hold the hill and you're chased off the hill. And then you continually, your unit continually tries to take that hill again, and they just get beaten down day after day after day. And it's just one thing after the next, after the next, after the next. And Peleliu is one of the most frustrating campaigns of the entire Pacific War. And it's just, 
it doesn't seem like there's ever going to be an end in sight, but eventually, obviously, there is. Guys, uh, this episode's run long, but it's been important. Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap this sucker up? I'm, I'm good, and thanks again for hopefully I haven't talked too long, but um, I'm looking forward to next week and next episode. So, yeah, it's a very important battle we need to discuss. Yeah. Yeah, and we got a lot more. Nobody to say. from Alabama ever talks too long, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> well, Australia, yeah, <laughs> or Australia, yeah, yeah exactly. Best of both worlds. Well, it's 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 been great having you back with us, Dave. We look forward to talking with you again next week. And uh, with that, we want to thank you very much for listening in or watching our conversation. Uh, please subscribe to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War Podcast wherever you receive your podcast. Give us a rating and review. We do appreciate it. Um, if you want to see the video version of this, if you're not already looking at it, look at it, look, look us up on YouTube. Uh, if you have a comment or a question, send us an email at unauthorizedpacificpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, once again, my name is Seth Perrin, and I want to thank you very much for listening and or watching. Also, another reminder for those who have never seen Dave Holland before, check out his YouTube channel called Guadalcanal Walking a Battlefield. It is a goldmine of Guadalcanal historic information. Dave personally takes you to the locations like no one else can. Dave, thank you again for being here, brother. It's always good to see you, and we will see you again next week. Loved it. Thank you. Yep. Bill, take us home. And I'm Bill Toady. See you again next week. <laughs>